Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Ruel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, make your second half of life even better than the first. As we get older, one of the most important ingredients to healthy aging, experts tell us, is lifelong learning, a self-motivated pursuit of new ideas, skills, and knowledge, particularly in the second half of life. But today, we're going to take a very different spin on lifelong learning as we take an in-depth look at a fascinating book called What Went Right? Lessons from Both Sides of the Teacher's Desk by Roberta Israeloff and George McDermott. Roberta, a lifelong writer, is currently the director of the nonprofit Squire Family Foundation, dedicated to encouraging the teaching of philosophy at pre-college levels. And George, a writer and poet, is a former teacher who had extensive editorial experience in several business and media fields over the course of his career. The two met in the late 1960s when George was a young English teacher at Syosset High School on Long Island. Roberta was one of his students, and so was I. Looking back, George and Roberta would recall their time at Syosset. One of us was a teacher, one of us was the student. Mostly what we did was argue. But when they found each other on social media several years ago, they began a steady correspondence that became a book relating their own lifelong learning experiences in America's public education system. I learned about their book through my long friendship with Roberta. After high school, we went on our separate ways to college, embarked on different careers and personal paths, but stayed in touch periodically over the years. I always look forward to our conversations. Roberta was warm, smart, funny, thoughtful, curious, also a terrific writer. I was especially intrigued when she told me her co-author was George McDermott, Mr. McDermott to me in high school, and perhaps not coincidentally, one of my favorite teachers who had a profound influence on my own career and view of education. The result of Roberta and George's collaboration is a provocative exchange about their perspectives over several decades from inside and outside the classroom. Everything from their time as teachers to the continuous debate over standardized testing to the perennial questions about how education should prepare students to be human, to be discerning and productive citizens in a complex and increasingly divisive and unpredictable world. But it is also a story about what Roberta and George learned about themselves, what they remembered, how they reconnected, what went right and wrong, what changed over their lives, and what has remained the same, what endures. Today's conversation is part one of a unique three-part series that will continue in July and August. Now, originally, I had planned to have both Roberta and George on my show. Unfortunately, Roberta was called away. She had a sudden family crisis. Uh, so, But today, I'm, I'm fortunate to have George with me, and I hope that both Roberta and George will be back for subsequent conversations. But today, let's welcome George McDermott to the show. George, welcome. Hi, thanks, Ron. It's a, good to see you again. Good to be here. Good to reconnect. Yes, and uh, good to talk about what actually, one of the things that actually matters. Which yes. Is, Go ahead. Yeah. Which is learning. You know, yes. And, uh, I mean, one of the problems that people have today is that they think they know. And, what, and when you think you know the answer, you stop looking for it. Right. And if you stop looking for it, you stop learning. And, right. So that, that's sort of my take on what you were talking about, about lifelong learning. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Um, so before we get, dive into the book, George, um, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about 
you know, uh, I'm you, sorry. I just, I just hit a button. It just took me out. I'm that's sorry. Okay. You're back. You're back. We're both back. So, so just as we start, I always, uh, you know, um, like to start my shows with a little bit of, uh, you know, for our audience about, you know, what, what our guests are like now they can, they can find them about your biography on uh, my website, royalresource.com. But, you know, tell me a little bit about your journey. Um, because as, I, as we were saying before the show, um, former students like me often think like, you know, when they leave and go to college that their teachers just, we don't know what happens. They, they don't stay. No, they, <laughs> they have their own interesting and diverse lives. So, so tell me a little bit about uh, just, you know, your career journey, and then we'll dive into the book. I got, uh, I stayed with teaching for, I think probably only a year or two after, after you were in my class. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, I started, uh, my wife and I started running out of money, uh, mm -hmm. that's, which is sort of a perennial problem for teachers. And uh, Long Island is not, at least then, Long Island was not a really easy place to live for a person who was trying to live on a teacher's salary. So I, uh, I left teaching. I didn't just leave Syosset. I left teaching, went into essentially uh marketing communications for a, mm -hmm. for a, a large company in, in Pennsylvania. And we did, did, I did a lot of very bizarre things. I did things that I didn't even know existed like industrial theater. I didn't know industrial theater existed, right. but, uh, but I did a lot of writing for that and, and screenplays and audio and stuff. And, and eventually I wound up, uh, you know, le that leaving that job too. Uh, because of the downside, the, the the wave of downsizing, and that this company almost came, actually went into uh, bankruptcy, I think, Chapter 11 for a while. And uh, so I went back to teaching. Well, I freelanced for a while. Then I went back to teaching. And, uh, and the two experiences were part of what led to Robert, my book with Roberta, uh, that the teaching that I did in the second wave was in Center City, Philadelphia. And that was a whole different experience from the teaching in Syosset on Long Island. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, what, what I found about that to, for my interest uh, was that, you know, I think that when you have a sort of a... Um, a, a a checkerboard career. Uh, I don't know if there's a better word for that, but basically it's not continuous. It, it does give you a certain perspective. You know, I, I, had, I had sort of on a parallel note, you know, uh, in journalism, I sort of went in and out, you know, and I think it, it gives you different perspectives. And I think, you know, from, you know, if you never leave the classroom, you don't get a look from the outside. And, and I think that uh, your experiences coming in and out of teaching a couple of times you know, really informed you in, in, in ways that, you know, you might have not seen otherwise. Well, it was, de it definitely provided. One of the things that, that I noticed is that the teachers who had, when I was in Philadelphia, the teachers who had bid there for the duration mm -hmm. had not really noticed how teaching had evolved uh, because it was a continuous process. Right. I'd been gone for 30 years. And I came back in and it was like, oh, wow, this is a whole different experience from what it was the first time around. And I mean, I could, re I, 
I not only could see the differences, I was being slapped in the face by them over and over and over all wow. the time. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I see what you mean. I, I think it's sort of like, you know, leaving your neighborhood and, you know, and coming back after, you know, 25 years, all of us, you see the differences that might, you might not have noticed if you would just live there continuously. So, yeah. 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 So let's talk about the book. You know, first of all, about sort of the unusual process of how you guys started the book about, you know, how you uh, met, re-met Roberta uh, through Facebook. It, it was, it was, it, you know, you were up until that time, I had heard that people reconnected <laughs> on Facebook, but I hadn't done it. But that Roberta found me, I say, uh -huh. uh, I, because I had been, I mean, one of the things that I did on, on Facebook fairly frequently was, was talking about how messed up I thought education, public education had become. Mm -hmm. And, and Roberta actually agreed with most of the positions that I was <laughs> okay. taking. And, and so she finally reached out and said, are you the George McDermott who was a teacher in Syosset? <laughs> and yeah, are you the Roberta who was in my 11th grade track one and uh and that's that's really how we got started and we were really just exchanging ideas and exchanging perspectives and that sort of thing uh without any intent to do anything except talk to each other and mm -hmm. and and you know become reacquainted and uh then sometime i don't know when it was it was after after we'd been talking for at least a year or two roberta said do you think we should write a book and one of the problems when you're talking to a teacher you know either your teacher or one of your former teachers or something like that and you and you suggest a project mm -hmm. you're going to get taken up on it i mean i mean <laughs> teachers <laughs> teachers Teachers will always encourage a student or a former student to undertake any kind of project that exists, you know, they, right. anything they think of, you know. Right. So, so, of course, I said, yeah, sure, I think we should write a book. Yeah. What do you uh -huh. want to write it about? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we just continued. And yeah. But the, the interesting was, is that you continued for quite a while and, and you decided to do it as an exchange of emails, which I thought was unusual. Well, we were we were English majors. English majors, are, you know, read Victorian novels, and right. Victorian novels are frequently written in epistolary style. And, uh -huh. and I mean, we debated other forms. We did we did actually talk about you know what form, and and we kept coming back to saying, well, why don't we just do it like letters? I mean, except instead of like emails, we'll do it like letters. Mm -hmm. and, and they will have been emails, but, and, uh, and once we made that decision, it sort of changed our perspective on the emails, but I mean, we knew that they were going to wind up in this book right. eventually, but, but, and that, which all that did really was make it, so we were being a little more careful about the writing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but they are letters. I mean, and certainly they're they not, are. you know, they're not, uh, you know, emails the way we think of them. They're, you know, they're communicated as emails, but there's a thoughtful quality to it. And there's a response, you know, and, you know, they're, 
you bring in other experiences. And so it's not just a Q&A between the two of you. There's a, there's a discussion to it. And it is interesting. It's sort of like, uh, it is sort of like cutting back and forth, you know, perspectives in a novel, you know. And uh, so I found that interesting. And I found it also very direct and, and uh, I, I, I found it compelling, you know, and, you know, it sort of went from chapter to chapter. I think initially both of you were written chapters and then sometimes, you know, you each took a chapter and responded to the other. So I thought it, I thought it worked pretty well. Very interesting. Well, the, yeah. chaptering, the chaptering was sort of interesting because we didn't have chapters when uh -huh. we submitted the manuscript. To oh, you didn't? The publisher. Publisher said, well, how are you, we need, we need chapters and we need a table of contents and, you know, and titles for each, and a title for each chapter. And we said, oh, you do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. So we went back and sort of divided, divided the letters into chapters. Right. And. And that was another exercise. It was kind of, it was kind of fun. It was kind of, because it, it, we wound up changing some things as a result of that. Right, right. Yeah, I think that when you structure it, I think it sort of gives a sort of a definition that makes you rethink those things. But I, but I thought it turned out well. Um, and I thought that the, the chapter headings worked. So I thought that was a... Uh, Worth, worth the effort, George. <laughs> well, I mean, you, I mean you, you have to do something for a publisher, right? He's going, well, what's the, what's the chapter? And, and I guess even coming up with the titles forced you to think, well, okay, what is, what's the essence of this conversation here? Yeah, so, um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so the, first, um, the first of our three conversations, um, you know, uh, I wanted to focus on sort of looking back at, at your early years with, with Roberta teaching without nostalgia, you know, like uh, just like, Oh, what was, and what's no longer there, but, but with a, a certain sense of discernment over the years, um, you know, what are some of the things that jumped out? And one of the things I, that certainly struck me reading the book was your, your discussion with Roberta about um, critical thinking skills, you know, a theme that you'd carry forward through the years. And, and so talk a little bit about that, George, what, what, how, you, how did you define those skills and how did you aim to teach them? Well, critical thinking is basically it's just thinking for yourself um, mm. uh, rather than relying on received wisdom, trying to, trying to examine issues, trying to examine texts, trying to examine uh, ideas and trying to come up with your own evaluation of those ideas and text. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's not just thinking, it's really thinking. I mean, they, a lot of people, when they say think for myself, really mean I'm just going to adopt a position. I'm going to take a position. And that position, they may not have thought through that position. They may they just say, okay, I think this is a cool position to take, or or this is the position that my friends take, or this is the position that the politicians I admire, or the movie actors, or whatever I admire take. And they just adopt that position. That's not critical thinking. That's not even thinking. Um, the uh, critical thinking is hard to do. And... Mm -hmm. And it's hard to teach. And um, it starts, I think it start, probably starts with the ability to distinguish between fact and opinion. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that English teachers have banged their heads against walls forever trying mm -hmm. to figure out how to do. Um, it's very hard. 
um, because facts are facts whether they're true or not. Opinions are opinions whether they're accurate or not. But you can verify a fact. You cannot verify an opinion. And that's the only difference. And, right. But that's very hard for students to learn. Right, right. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I was struck by that in, in, in your class um, because, you know, you, you, had a, you, you had a very ambitious uh, syllabus of poems and short stories and novels. Uh, I think it was American Lit we were looking. We were, uh, um, but it was um, your, your questions and your exams were always thought-provoking and they were, they pushed you. So, so I think it's easy with uh, literature to basically uh, retreat into, you know, um, sort of, you know, secondary analysis of imagery and, you know, um, and, you know, the structure and sort of what I call technical analysis, you know, and, and, and you know, um, basically uh, critical analysis. Um, uh, but, you know, that to me didn't excite me. What excited me was your effort to really provoke, uh, provoke us to think about uh, whether, th even though this was fiction, what was the truth behind this fiction and how did it relate to your life? So unfortunately, we need to take a quick break right now, uh, we, but uh, we'll get right back on this after the break, George. So folks, uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be back uh, in, in two minutes with much more from George McDermott. Don't go anywhere. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. So we're talking with George McDermott, uh, co-author of a book, a fascinating book called What Went Right, about his uh, teaching over many years with uh, one of his students, uh, Roberta Israeloff. Uh, and uh, so we have George today. We'll, we'll have Roberta back for one of our subsequent episodes. Uh, but before the break, we were talking about uh, critical thinking skills, and we we um, we just started, you know, to dive into that. Um, so I wanted to continue along that discussion. And one of the things we were talking about is that 
it, it is a tough a tough thing that um uh you know i think that you've experienced in, in education too what you call sort of critical thinking skills versus a transfusion model of you know, education of just you know giving information to students and expecting them to just absorb them um but um uh so uh, I, I want to just talk a little bit more about that, uh, and uh, you know what uh, you know what that meant to you uh, in terms of uh, you know uh, uh, you know your 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 aim in teaching and how did you you know provoke people to get involved in critical thinking? Um, I well the the way teachers do everything is by asking questions. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think probably actually the best story I've got for critical thinking mm -hmm. was happened in, in a class. It was not your class; it was another class. And they and I got the impression over the first couple of weeks of class that they were a little too passive. Mm -hmm. They were they were they were a little too willing to accept what authority figures like me said. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, we're gonna do, I think it was Ethan Frome, uh, the novel, Ethan Frome. I said, and I think probably the most efficient way to do this novel is for me to just lecture the way a college professor was lecturing. You guys take notes and, uh, and then we'll get through it real quickly and then we can have a quiz and we can move on to the other stuff in the curriculum. Right. And they just sort of very dutifully took notes. And what I told them was in the lectures was the most preposterous analysis I could, I could come up with. There was absolutely no defense. There was, there was no critical thought that would, that would uh, allow anyone to come up with those ideas for that novel. And, but I just said, I said the, all that stuff and I got maybe, maybe halfway through, maybe a third quarter through the novel. And I said, okay, we're going to have an intermediate quiz here. And, okay. and I want you guys to just, you know, we'll, we'll schedule it for Monday and you guys study over the weekend and we'll give you the quiz and stuff. And I gave them the quiz. And if they answered with the answer, with the, interpretation I had given them in those lectures, I marked the answers wrong because they were wrong. <laughs> and I don't think anyone in the class passed that quiz. And they were, they were really, really upset. Mm -hmm. And I told them, um, the fact that I said it doesn't mean it's right. Mm -hmm. You know, if you didn't think it was right, did you agree with all those things I was? And they said, well, no, we didn't agree with all the things you were saying. <laughs> but, you were saying them. And I said, but the fact that I said it doesn't mean it's right. You have, to, you have to look at it for yourself. And if you don't think it's right, ask me why some of the, what you think isn't right or suggest what you think as an alternative or something. Right. So anyway, I gave them, a, uh, I did give them a chance by the way, I did give them a chance to take the quiz over, and they and they did fine. And, and you know, I said, "Okay, we'll count the real one." You know, right, right, right. But, yeah. But I think they learned the lesson. I mean, right. it was they were at least a lot less passive from that point on. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I think that. So that that sort of um, uh, 
leads me to uh, talk about one of the, the, the things that you mentioned in the book, which is teaching as a subversive activity. Now, of course, we're not talking about subverting students or, you know, converting them to some ideology, but, um, you know, I, I think it does go to the notion of, uh, you know, uh, sort of pushing them into asking questions uh, as opposed to just accepting answers as what you just said. Um, yeah. Yeah. There was no, there was no political agenda. Uh, we, uh, but what we tried to do was we tried to make it pretty clear that what we valued were the questions, not the answers, right. at least not prepackaged answers. And that, that, that your, your, your duty as a student when you're in high school or when you're in college or, or when you're in graduate school or your duty as a, a functioning human being after you become an adult and are out on your own is to ask questions, to, to evaluate things, to come up with ideas on your own. And, and like back to the idea of lifelong learning, you know, lifelong learning means admitting that you don't already know. Right. 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 Yeah. And I, I think, you know, it, it does. So it seems to be a balance. We've talked about this in our previous conversations too, about, um, Certainly, that's a primary goal of, of, of really spurring people to critical thinking. The, the other side that we've talked about is that there is a place that, that you've talked about for um, uh, you know, examination of, is there a corpus of knowledge you should come out with from education? And I think that's something worth looking at. Well, what is that? You know, what, what, in terms of what kind of knowledge do, should we expect and should we you know, leave, um, you know, should students leave with having learned? Um, I do believe that there is uh, a common, for lack of a less inflammatory term, I do believe there is a common core. I, mm -hmm. I believe, I do believe there are things everybody needs to know. Um, and I mean, they need, you need to know it just as a common experience that allows you to communicate from that common experience and build on it. Um, right. If uh, you know, uh, there are there are grammar and usage things. I, I did manage to teach some grammar and usage even in the middle of this in in the middle of this critical thinking thing. I remember teach, uh, teaching. Uh, I. I can't remember what it was. I, I actually asked Roberta at one time. Uh, you know, did I ever actually teach participles? And she mm -hmm. said, yeah, as a matter of fact, you did teach participles. Right, right. But, but uh, it, it, you, there are things you need to know. And there's, uh, even, the, even the, what they call the canon, the, all those dead white male authors that, that, that are people. I think the reason it's the canon is that they're good. You know, I mean, right. Shakespeare was not a shabby writer. Right. Um, right. Neither was Milton. Neither was Faulkner. Neither was neither was Fitzgerald. They were yeah. all pretty good writers. Yeah. Which is why they're in the. What What has changed is that there should be more people in the canon. Mm -hmm. It's not that the ones who are there shouldn't be. It's 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 that. It's that we should also have more women. We should have more minorities. We should have more more you know, more voices. Right, right. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I, and I think that, so I, for me, it was, uh, you know, not surprisingly um, 
I was an English major in college. Um, so I was more interested broadly in literature, not just English, but nevertheless, um, I felt that there was important to have a canon, sort of a common experience of, of our heritage. But I also felt pretty strongly about um, language and the structure of language. And that, I guess, you know, it made me sort of feel like an old fogey, but I, I did think that knowing the structure was important. And there are certain things that, um, certain things that still, <laughs> you know, bug me, um, you know, uh, you know, for example, and say, people say, well, between you and I, you know, when I'm like, no, no, it's, uh, I know you think it sounds more elegant to say between you and I, but do you understand the objective you know, <laughs> case? Um, and, and, and so I, I think that structure is important and I, I, I don't regret, um, being, uh, you know, your reviewing of things like participles, uh, uh, it, to me, it was like, um, and earlier in, in my, you know, studenthood, you know, diagramming sentences, <laughs> which I felt, you know, was useful, you know, to understand the structure of why things fit. I, I mean, part of it was I, I was also very interested in science. So seeing that structure was like, well, this is interesting. This makes sense. And it helped me make sense of language. And I think that those things, I do think that some of that has been lost. You know, I think that along with, uh, you know, with my son's age, you know, they, they don't teach script anymore, right? They don't teach handwriting. Um, and, and I think, so some things are lost by being, um, I don't want to say too liberal. That's not the right word, but just by, by letting go of, of some of the, the discipline. Well, the, the, I think teachers today actually have a harder time than, than I had. And in either, in, in, in either of the, the times that I was teaching, I mean, it was, it was harder the second time through than it was the first time through and for the same reason that I'm about to mention, which is the, the, the ascendancy of social media, the ascendancy of texting, uh, at first email and then texting, um, it's, they are linguistically sloppy. Uh, right. Social media posts are, are sloppy. Uh, right. tech, emails tend to be sloppy. Texts tend to be defined. They, they tend to be a, a, the, the working definition of sloppy. I mean, I, mean, I, I, uh, I did not allow students to use the, the capital letter U instead of U. I did not allow them to use the numeral four instead of F-O-R. I did right. not, you know. And, and, and I think people need to know standard. I do think people need to know standard, standard usage and standard, standard English. But, I mean, you, you, you depart from it. I mean, God knows I depart from it in my writing but I do it intentionally I, rather, than, rather than through ignorance. Right, right. Yeah, and I think that, you know, some things have changed over the years. I remember uh, sort of when, when I was growing up with you, I mean, you, you never started a sentence with a conjunction, right? You never started with but or and. And of course, that's become, you know, everybody does that, including good writers, journalists, you know, it's it's a you're breaking the rules, but there's a reason for it. And there's a sense of emphasis uh, that, that makes sense. So that's kind of, you know, um, there, you, you can evolve in certain ways. And I certainly, 
there, there's some word usages which used to bother me. And I remember um, there, I'll mention one of them, which was uh, to impact something, right? I mean, you know, we, 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 we tend to turn nouns into verbs, you know, right? And, and that's, I don't know if that started with sports talk or whatever, but, but basically uh, I remember one of my mentors, a uh, man who, you know, you know, William Zinzer, who wrote on writing, writing well, you know, talking to him, you know, uh, years ago, and he said, listen, I've just given up on some things. <laughs> let it go. <laughs> let, let impact be a verb. You know, it's gonna, it's there, you know. <laughs> The, the the one that I've given up resisting is incentivize. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. If you don't want to say give them an incentive, that's fine. You know, it's okay. You can say I'll incentivize them. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I I do think that you can basically, um, you know, you can you can balance rigor with innovation and, you know, and, and a new inventiveness in language. But, uh, you know, I, I did appreciate your sticking to some of these things that, um, because I think that, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, there is something to sloppiness of writing sort of is about sloppiness of thinking. You know, I think that, you know, and, and, you know, there is something to when, when, people have an idea about something and I, you know, my response is, you know what, write that down, send that to me. And if you can write it down and it makes sense, then you've thought it through, then, then it makes sense. You know, the writing does make a difference, you know, as opposed to just, you know, communicating something orally. There was a, there was a group that I joined when I was in Philadelphia, which was, it's, it's a national group, and we had a, a Philadelphia chapter called, it was the Philadelphia Writing Project, which mm -hmm. is a, oh. which is, this thing keeps cutting out. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, the Zoom. Yeah. So we, we got um, you, George. Yeah, you're in Philadelphia Writing Project. Uh, and one of their, one of their principles was that learning to write is one thing, but you can also write to learn. Mm. And, and that's sort of what you just said, which is if you can write it down and communicate it to me, that'll help you learn it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the things that I want to talk about too was just, um, you know, you, you did have a, you know, a profound effect on me as a teacher. You know, the, I had good teachers, uh, but I think that, uh, you know, there are special teachers and, and I think that, you know, there, whatever you want to say about teachers, I do think that everybody has experiences with teachers that affected them um, in profound ways and positive ways. Uh, I mean, I guess there's some negative ones, but, but basically you remember your teachers. So I wanted you to talk about the importance of teachers as, because it's, it's, it's often, you know, a, a tricky role. You're balancing, you know, your you're, you know, instructor, you're a mentor, you're some, you know, people sort of look at you as in, in a parental way. How did you see yourself as a teacher? And did that change over the years? Uh, yeah, it changed. Um, the first teaching job I had was actually before Syosset. It was in mm -hmm. a, it was in a, it was in a school in upstate New York. And I was teaching middle school instead of instead of high school, mm -hmm. uh, seventh grade and ninth grade. And 
it was a school where it was a it was a combined junior senior high and uh and there were kids it was it was not an urban school it was not even really a suburban school it was basic mm-hmm. it was pretty much a, a, a rural school there were seniors in that school who were as old as i was mm-hmm. almost i mean it, it was it was the first job i had after i graduated from college so i and i i was a year young for my for my class so i was I think I had just turned 21 when I started teaching in that school. Wow. And there were kids, there were kids there who were 19. Wow. And uh, so at that school, it was, it was hard to think of myself as a teacher, not as a contemporary. By the Mm -hmm. time I got to Syosset, I could think of myself as a teacher, but, but, I knew that I wasn't that much older than you, you guys. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, I was sort of, sort of in the older brother category, able to, able to like share experience and give advice from that perspective. I right. thought. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so George, we're going to take another uh, short break. Um, but when we come back, we'll be talking much more with uh, George McDermott. I want to continue talking to him about teachers because there's a lot, uh, to say about that. And I want to re- share some of my own reflections about uh, teaching and my being a student with him. So folks uh, don't go away. We'll be right back with much more from George McDermott. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at Voice America TRN or twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN. Tune in to Melody Edmondson's The Space of the Waste radio program. This companion piece to her successful guidebook series, The Space of the Waste, focuses on body types and how to make your waist length flattering no matter what your body type is. Guests include designers, merchandise managers, factory owners, and more. You'll also find out what accessories will complement your body shape and waist length. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You are listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with George McDermott, a poet and writer and co-author of a fascinating book called um, What Went Right? Lessons from Both Sides of the Teacher's Desk. And before the break, we was talking with George about um, just the role of teachers and, you know, the sort of the multiple roles they take. And uh, uh, George was, was talking about, you know, sort of his perspective over time being changed and, and just uh, commenting on the difficulty, teach, you know, teachers have today in, 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 in many ways. So talk, let's continue that discussion, George. How, how, how has that changed? I think I think teachers are being blamed for the failures of education and not credited for the successes of public education. Um, the, uh, the I think teachers today are having a much harder time than than I was having um, mm-hmm. when I was teaching. I, I you know I I am I'm co- continuously astounded. By the by, the ability of teachers to to bear up under the pressures that they're under, um, and it was not. I mean, it was already bad, and then the COVID uh, uh, pandemic hit, and that made it even worse. Um, teachers teachers are in an almost impossible position today, I think, and and it's partly a result of the pressures on public education itself, not just not just on the teachers, but on the entire institution of public education. There's a there's a group. I now live in Florida, and there's a group in Florida called the Florida Bats, with B A T S, which stands for Badass Teachers, <laughs> and, and the Florida Bats. Uh, sort of summarize the, the 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 situation by saying that the there there is a group of self-labeled education reformers who have basically three three objectives in their in their agenda, mm-hmm. which are underfund, undervalue, and overtake, and and it's. What you do is you you cut the funding for the schools, you undervalue the teachers and the things that they're trying to accomplish, and then when they fail, which they inevitably will, because because you're going, you're not giving them the resources they need in order to succeed, right. uh, you then take over the schools and privatize education, which is probably the objective, which is probably the objective. They're probably mm-hmm. trying to get it out of public. And into the private sector, mm-hmm. and and the teachers are the only only point of resistance to that because mm-hmm. because they're trying to they're instead of trying to get rid of public education they're trying to enact it. Right, right, yeah. I I, I do think that there are just a lot of pressures that, well, I didn't feel them at you know when I was in high school on teachers and and that you were able to take. I don't want to say take chances, but you were able to basically try things that I think would be difficult to do today. And so I recall that, you know, in one of my previous conversations with you, I, I said to me, you know, that, that, that there was, um, from my perspective as a student, uh, you know, you know in, in this hierarchical relationship with teachers, 
there was one, you know, there was reading, writing, arithmetic. And then, then there was this, what I call the fourth R, which was really important to me, which was respect. And that's what I felt from, you know, the good teachers that I had was uh, they respected me enough to basically um, take chances and learning um, basically to, you know, to look at questions that I might have not have looked at. And, um, you know, I, I got this in classes and, and I got it as well. Um, so I was the editor of my high school paper. Um, and uh, we, you know, at that time it was, we had an ambitious, you know, publishing. We published every other week. Um, and it was, you know, it was like being on a sports team. It was really um, uh, a very serious effort. And I remember um, the, um, my high school advisor, a uh, man named Ron Barry, who you might recall from years ago, who later became a dean, uh, which was put him in an interesting position of both being an English teacher and a dean. Um, but there was a particular article that, that I had in the paper. Um, and uh, the student who wrote it, uh, it was about, it was about, a, a, you know, this is late 60s, so it was about a, you know, a, a demonstration that got violent, and he was describing it, uh, and at one point, he, he used, uh, you know, an expletive, um, which was clearly not um, <laughs> looked upon fondly by the administration, uh, but so you know, I had a long discussion with him about it. And, and I felt, well, uh, I knew that this was not going to be looked upon kindly, but I, I felt that it was important to the, the article. It was important to what the story was about. So I, I let it go through. And then the, the advisor, Mr. Barry, um, came to me and, and he just, you know, in his very low key way, he looked over, he looked over the pages before, you know, they were submitted to the printer. And he sort of looked at this, he flagged it and he said to me, you saw this? I said, yeah. Well, you want to talk to me about it? So we had a long discussion about it. And he said, um, you know, it's going to happen, right? And I said, I have a pretty good idea. You know, he said, okay, as long as you know. And it went through and, you know, the usual um, uh, explosions, you know, happened, but he, he backed me up. He backed, you know, he sat there and, you know, in, in the office of the principal and the assistant principal and the supervisor. And, you know, and it, you know, he defended me, you know, he didn't, you know. And so it was that kind of experience, that kind of respect for student inquiry, you know, that 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 was really important. And it really shaped, you know, how I felt about education, you know, in the best sense. That's that's. Yeah, that's what I think teachers trying to do back then and are still, and when they're doing it right, that's what they'd like to be doing now. Um, I think there's less time to do that because because you have all these tests that you have to be preparing students right. for. But but uh, but but yeah, when, one of the one of the words that comes up a lot in educational theory is inquiry 
Mm-hmm. And that's what you're trying to. That's what you're trying to stimulate among among your students. Whether you're talking, uh, that's especially true in English. It's especially true in social studies uh, or history. It's especially true in any of the social stu- social sciences or or the humanities. But I think it can also be true in math. I think it can also be true in sciences. It's. Uh, I think what you're trying to do is get get kids interested in trying to find answers uh, or at least to explore the questions and and if that means using a vocabulary that's going to get, get them in trouble when they print it in their newspaper then okay that's okay as long as they know as long as they know it's going to get them in trouble right you know right. And, and they're prepared for that sure right right yeah, I think that one of the difficulties too that you know for teachers is that you know you have you're working with students and you're teaching them and um, inescapably you're you're a role model in ways to them you know and they're at a time of life where they're growing they're learning they're you know you know learning things in life they're they're adolescents they're you know they're young people. Um, and I think one of the difficulties is that, you know, and you weren't that much older than, than we, but, but, you know, you said, uh, yeah, sort of an older brother's sort of, you know, sensibility. But I think that, you know, one of the words that we'll come back to, I'm sure, in our future episodes is just, you know, what you, what you talk about in the book about trying to teach students what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really valuable idea but difficult and i think that there's pressure on teachers now not to do that <laughs> just stick to the curriculum just you know stick to the facts man you know but, but what you're, when you say you're tr- trying to teach students to be human and yes uh, roberta and i both came back multiple times to that whole idea of trying to teach humanity trying to teach the human experience trying to prepare students to be functional adults um, that's really what you're saying. You know, you want them, you want them to be functional when they're when they're out there. You right. want them to be able to, uh, you know, you can't know what challenges they're going to face in their future, but you can teach them the kind of analytical thinking and the creative problem solving techniques that will allow them to deal with what they're facing. Right. And that's what you're trying to do. Right. Right. And I think, you know, I think you mentioned the book and then you also mentioned in conversations I think I've had with you um, that, you know, just you also have this role that 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 is just there and and you influence students in ways you don't even know until years later. So I remember you tell me, just relate that experience you had with the student that that you mentioned to me that you realized that he came back to you and you had, <laughs> had no idea the, the kind of influence you had and that he was sort of a quiet student in the back of the class. You weren't, you weren't, didn't know much about him, but I think that's an interesting thing. Well, there was, there was, well, there, there were two and, and the one who was the, the quiet student in the back of the class was the one who figured out what was going on in the movie 2001. Huh. Um, the, uh, we we did we did try to teach kids not just print literature but also also movies and that sort of thing. So we took the we took 
I think probably most of Sayas at high school went to go see 2001, the movie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we got into discussions afterwards, and we discussed it much the same we would have discussed a, a, a novel. But nobody was able to figure out why the computer was named Hal. But this one kid said, I think I know. And we said, okay, why? And he said, well, if you count back each letter, what from IBM, you get HAL. Hmm. And everybody said, whoa, I bet that's right. You know? <laughs> and that was, I think that was the first, I mean, this kid had never raised his hand in all the months before we went to see that movie. And I, I can tell you from a teacher's perspective, if you're a student and you have never raised your hand, if you raise your hand to make a contribution, you will be called on. You're right. guaranteed you will be right. called on. <laughs> right, right, right. But there, there, are, there are students who have told me things that they remember from my class that I don't, I don't remember ever doing. Right. I, I remember one student told me that uh, he remembered my berating a class for bullying a girl. In, in class, I said, I said, you know, I feel like I should take off five points from all of your averages simply for being bullies. Mm. And uh, I don't remember doing that. I remember that I, I have always been anti-bullying, but uh, but I don't remember. To, but he remembered it. He remembered it 30 years later. Wow. Know? So it yeah. must have made an impression on him. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the rule is, I think, you can count on 10% of what you say, but you never know which 10% it's going to be. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right, right. Well, uh, there's much more to talk about, but I think we're going to have to bring our today's conversation to a close. I'm just grateful that we're going to have two more and hopefully with Roberta back. Um, there's much more I want to talk to you about, you know, a notion you talked about experiential learning um, and some some instances that I was involved with, with Roberta on that. Um, so, um, but anyway, so I just wanted to thank you very much, George, for a very, uh, uh, you know, uh, incisive conversation today. And remember, this is just the first of our trilogy over the next two months. Um, so um, if, I just want to mention, uh, friends, if you missed today's conversation with George McDermott, you could still listen to it as a podcast on voiceamerica.com. The search for my show, 45 Forward. You can also find it on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or go to my website, rollwellresources.com, and just click on the 45 Forward tab. So uh, be sure to join me next Monday, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern time, when I'll be talking with Guido Durley, the founder of MX Elder Care, who will talk about his mission to guide families through each step of the Medicaid application process so they can secure the best personalized long-term care for their loved ones. And look forward and look uh, for our future episodes with George and Roberta, hopefully in the next couple of months. Uh, but until then, folks, keep moving forward, 45 forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.